Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover pre-gestational diabetes mellitus from the ACOG Practice Bulletin number 201 from December 2018. The prevalence of diabetes mellitus in women of reproductive age has been reported to be from 3 to close to 7% with pregestational diabetes observed in 1 to 2% of all pregnancies. Now, although 90% of cases of diabetes encountered during pregnancy are gestational diabetes, more than one half of these women will develop type 2 diabetes later in life. There are racial and ethnic disparities in women with pregestational diabetes. One study found higher rates in black, Native American, and Hispanic women, and lower rates in non-Hispanic white and Asian women. Now, if diabetes is diagnosed in the first trimester or the early second trimester with the standard diagnostic criteria of a hemoglobin A1c greater than or equal to 6.5% or a fasting plasma glucose of greater than 126 or even a two-hour glucose value of 200 or greater on a 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test, then it's considered pregestational diabetes. Maternal glucose control should be maintained near physiological levels before and throughout pregnancy to decrease the likelihood of complications of hyperglycemia, including spontaneous abortion, fetal malformation, fetal macrosomia, fetal death, and neonatal morbidity. Self-monitoring of blood glucose using finger stick glucose values recorded in a glucose log are commonly reviewed at least every one to two weeks by a physician during the first two trimesters and weekly after 24 to 28 weeks in order to adapt the treatment regimen to fluctuating insulin needs. Medical nutrition therapy with a carbohydrate-controlled diet is also important. When possible, having a registered dietitian or certified diabetes educator involved in nutritional counseling is beneficial. Now, although the optimal dietary composition for pregnancy is unknown, wholesome food choices, including 40 to 50% from complex, high fiber carbohydrates, 15 to 30% from protein, and 20 to 35% from primarily unsaturated fats are commonly advised. Now, complex carbohydrates are recommended because they are digested more slowly and are less likely to produce significant postprandial hyperglycemia. In pregnancy, on average, insulin needs increase from a range of about 0.7 units per kilo actual body weight in the first trimester to 0.8 to 1 units per kilo per day in the second trimester and up to 1.2 units per kilo per day in the third trimester. Glycemia goals generally include fasting and pre-meal glucose values of 75 milligrams per deciliter or less and either a one-hour postprandial glucose value of 140 or less or a two-hour value of 120 or less. Now, in the second and third trimesters, a hemoglobin A1c less than 6% has the lowest risk of large for gestational age infants. Importantly, because of the association of elevated glucose values and congenital anomalies, aggressive approaches to glycemic control early in the first trimester before or during embryogenesis may reduce the risk of fetal anomalies. All right, when we come back, let's cover the different types of insulin that can be used during pregnancy. 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's talk about the different kinds of insulin. Remember that insulin Lispro and insulin Aspart are rapid-acting insulins. Both have an onset of action between 1 to 15 minutes, a peak of action of 1 to 2 hours, and a duration of action of only 4 to 5 hours. That's in contrast to regular insulin that takes 30 to 60 minutes for its onset of action, then peaks at 2 to 4 hours, and has a duration of 6 to 8 hours. Then there's the intermediate acting insulin, which is NPH, which allows for a slower onset of action of about one to three hours and a peak action of five to seven hours and lasts about 13 to 18 hours. The long-acting basal release of insulin are things like insulin detrimere, which is also called levomere. This has an onset of action of 1 to 3 hours with a peak of about 8 to 10 hours and lasts from 18 up to 26 hours. Although regular insulin is considered a short-acting insulin, it is not interchangeable with the rapid-acting insulin analogs like Lispro or Aspart. Generally, insulin Lispro and insulin Aspart should be used preferentially instead of regular insulin because both have a more rapid onset of action, which enables the patient to administer the insulin right before the time of a meal rather than 10 to 15 minutes or longer before the anticipated meal. Because of improved outcomes with compliance, when used subcutaneously, Lispro and Aspart insulin generally are preferred over regular insulin. Now, the longer-acting or the basal insulins like NPH are used to maintain euglycemia between meals and in the fasting state. Usually, NPH is given before breakfast along with a rapid-acting insulin. Bedtime administration of NPH is preferred over that given at time of dinner because an injection given with the evening meal may increase the risk of nocturnal hypoglycemia. Detrimere insulin received approval from the U.S. FDA for reclassification to pregnancy category B from category C in 2012 when that designation was still in effect. This was based on a randomized trial comparing Detrimere to NPH in more than 300 pregnant women with type 1 diabetes. The study showed that Detrimere was non-inferior to NPH in lowering hemoglobin A1c and preventing hypoglycemic episodes. All right, now a quick cautionary note about the use of insulin during pregnancy. Hypoglycemia is more frequent in pregnancy than at other times, so patients should be questioned to determine if they can recognize when their glucose levels decrease to less than 60 milligrams per deciliter. Patients and their families should be taught how to respond quickly and appropriately to hypoglycemia. The best approach is to have glucose tablets available at all times. A drink of fruit juice or milk can be used if immediately available. Patients should have glucagon on hand for severe hypoglycemia and loss of consciousness. Glucagon administration can be performed by non-medical personnel, including family members, who should know where the glucagon is kept and how to administer it. 
Well, what about oral medication? Oral hypoglycemic agents are not generally used in patients with type 1 diabetes. Although they are widely used in the treatment of non-pregnant patients with type 2 diabetes, they have not been well studied in the treatment of women with pregestational diabetes during pregnancy. Women with type 2 diabetes who are stable on oral agents before pregnancy and who become pregnant should be counseled that insulin is the preferred therapy in pregnancy and that oral anti-diabetic medication are not approved by the U.S. FDA for treatment of diabetes during pregnancy because they cross the placenta and lack long-term neonatal safety data. Now, for those women with type 2 diabetes who decline insulin, those who think that they cannot use insulin at home because they are not capable of self-injection or not capable to check their sugar levels, or those who cannot afford insulin, metformin and rarely glybride is a reasonable alternative choice in the context of discussing with the patient the limitations of the safety data and a high rate of treatment failure which requires insulin supplementation. Regarding optimal timing of delivery in women with pre-existing diabetes, well, that depends on the situation. Optimal timing of delivery relies on balancing the risk of fetal death with the risk of premature birth. Early delivery, defined as 36 weeks to 38 weeks and 6 days, or even earlier, may be indicated in some patients with vasculopathy, nephropathy, poor glucose control, or a prior stillbirth. Now, in contrast, women with well-controlled diabetes with no other comorbidities may be managed expectantly up to 39 weeks and 0 days to 39 weeks and 6 days as long as antenatal testing remains reassuring. Expectant management beyond 40 weeks and 0 days generally is not recommended for women with pregestational diabetes. Part of patient education is to remind patients that pregnancy has been associated with exacerbations of diabetes-related complications, particularly retinopathy and nephropathy. Remember that diabetic retinopathy is a leading cause of blindness in the U.S. in individuals that are 24 to 74 years of age. It's classified as either non-proliferative or proliferative. Studies have shown that women who undergo strict glycemic control early in pregnancy can experience rapid rapid progression of retinopathy. Now, this is consistent with non-pregnant diabetic individuals who experience progression with improved glycemic control, although the long-term benefits of glycemic control appear to outweigh the harms. Diabetic nephropathy is estimated to be present in 5-10% to of diabetic pregnancies. That's why early in the first trimester, a 24-hour total urine protein should be collected for a baseline to determine if nephropathy is present. Diabetic nephropathy is defined as having 500 milligrams per 24 hours in a urine collection. Women with pre-existing diabetic nephropathy are at significant higher risk for several adverse obstetric complications, including hypertensive disorders, uteroplacental insufficiency, and iatrogenic preterm birth because of worsening renal failure. Additionally, remember that chronic hypertension is observed in about 5-10% to 10% of pregnant women with pregestational diabetes, so close attention to blood pressure monitoring should also occur. Lastly, pregestational diabetes is a risk factor for acute myocardial infarction during pregnancy. Symptomatic coronary artery disease in women with pregestational diabetes is most commonly seen in those with long-standing disease, nephropathy, and hypertension.
All right, well, that wraps up our quick review of the practice bulletin from December 2018 from the American College of OBGYN on pre-existing diabetes in pregnancy. We did not have time, and it wasn't the intent, to review the white classification, the classification scheme which classifies pre-existing diabetes based on end organ damage and time of onset or duration of disease during pregnancy. But the white classification is online, and you can look that up at another time. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Dr. Chapa's Clinical Pearls.